All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26? We have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we are in chapter 26. And where we are in this chapter, it's about five and a half hours from the cross. It's still very early in the morning. Uh, I believe Thursday morning when Jesus was crucified. It's about 3.30 a.m. As we've been studying this chapter, you remember that the previous evening began in chapter 13 of John's Gospel. John's the only one who records the events uh, that he records in chapters 13 through 17 uh, of his Gospel. And um, those events actually take up a quarter of his Gospel to cover six hours. So he really gives us detail. But the evening began, previous evening began in chapter 13 of John's Gospel in the upper room where Jesus and his 12 disciples observed the Passover together. Now as we have talked about at one point Judas left to carry out his betrayal of Christ. When he left the room, then Jesus instituted communion and began to give his disciples one final teaching before his crucifixion to prepare them for the events of the next day and to encourage their hearts, no doubt. And so he begins this teaching at the beginning of chapter 14. At the end of chapter 14, we read in John's Gospel how that Jesus said to his 11 remaining disciples, Arise, let us go from here. So they leave the upper room at that point and begin to walk through the streets of Jerusalem, making their way towards the Mount of Olives, uh, where Jesus will spend the next few hours. But as, as they were walking, Jesus kept teaching. And his teaching covers chapters 14 through 16. We have talked about this. It's really his farewell address before the cross to his disciples. They eventually, of course, cross the Kidron Valley, and then walking up the Mount of Olives, the Lord continues to, uh, to give them this very important discourse, finishing, I believe, as they came to the entrance to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would spend the next few hours in prayer before being arrested. In fact, we studied that last time. And so Jesus brings now Peter, James, and John into the garden to kind of keep him company. His soul is very heavy, very troubled. He knows that in a few hours he's going to be separated from the Father for the first time in eternity as he becomes sin for humanity. So he is deeply distressed. We talked about this last week and brings Peter, James, and John into the garden and says, you guys wait here with me and pray for me. And he goes a little farther and prays three times, Father, if it is possible let this cup, the cup of judgment poured out upon the sun shortly, pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Of course, the Father's silence was deafening and spoke volumes to the fact that, no, there was no other way for us to be saved except by Jesus going to the cross. Each time he prays that he comes back to check on his disciples, they're sleeping. Well, they had a big meal, you know how it goes. How many of you guys zonk out after Thanksgiving? So, so you know, but they were tired, you know, it's by this time, 4 o'clock in the morning now. And uh, he goes back a second time and prays the same thing, comes back, finds him sleeping. Third time, same thing, comes back, says, guys, get up. My betrayer is coming. At that point, Judas walks into the garden with soldiers carrying clubs and torches to arrest this very dangerous criminal named Jesus of Nazareth, you know, who's done nothing but help people and heal the sick and feed hungry people. And, but, but he's a dangerous threat. So they come with swords and clubs to arrest him. And that's where we pick the story up. Of course, Judas betrays him with a kiss and points him out to the soldiers. But we pick the story up that in verse 57, 
of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end, or to see what was going to happen here. Now, this would be the first of two trials, one religious, the other civil, that Jesus would endure before his crucifixion. The first one took place before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high council. The second one would take place before Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the region. And if we combine all the accounts from the Gospels, and I encourage you to do that, when you're reading about something as important as the crucifixion or the resurrection, look at all four of the Gospels to piece together a full picture of what went on that night. And as we do that, we learn from the four Gospels that each of these trials, there was two of them, had three phases to them each. In fact, John's account tells us that what they did was, after they arrested Jesus in the garden, they first took him to Annas, who was Caiaphas's father-in-law. Now, Annas was the legitimate high priest, the one that the Jewish people recognized, all right? And so they first brought him to Annas, and after they brought him to Annas, then they brought him over to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest that Rome had appointed. They didn't like Annas for some reason. So they appointed Caiaphas. At this time, there were two high priests, and they were in cahoots anyways. They were relatives, and so, you know, it wasn't a big deal. But Annas was probably the power behind the office of high priest. And so Matthew just begins, he just picks it up in the second phase of the Jewish trial. Okay, he just starts with the house of Caiaphas. But you know, it first started at the house of Annas and then moved to Caiaphas's house. And it was at Caiaphas's house that the Sanhedrin had assembled. They were waiting for Jesus. And uh, guys, as you study this event, uh, this so-called trial, it was a kangaroo court, pure and simple. Uh, they broke almost every rule, the Sanhedrin broke almost every rule they had established with regard to providing a person, a fair and just trial. First of all, you were supposed to, they had mandated you were supposed to give the defendant time to prepare a proper defense. They didn't do that. They just quickly arrested Jesus, rushed him over to, to Annas and then Caiaphas' the house. They already had predetermined the verdict. They were just looking for anything to, to you know, be, be able to pass it. They had already determined he was guilty, you know, and deserving of death, which, you know, really robbed Jesus of any semblance of justice uh, with this whole deal. Furthermore, they were not supposed to meet at night, nor during any Jewish feast. Well, they met at night. It was the Feast of Passover. So they broke two laws there. Number three, they were not supposed to bribe witnesses to commit perjury, of course, but they did. Number four, the death verdict was not to be carried out until a night had elapsed. They pronounced him guilty uh, early in the morning and rushed him to Pilate, and then he was crucified by 9 a.m. So they broke that rule. And finally, the accused was not to testify against himself, which they made Jesus do at one point, as we'll see. And on and on it went. There are people who have written whole books to show you how the, every law the Jews had established for a fair trial, they broke. Verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They couldn't find anything on him legitimately. He was sinless. They had to trump up false charges. All right? But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none, nothing they could use to accuse Jesus of. Now, according to Jewish law, 
All evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses. Remember what God said, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing shall be established. So in a court of law, you had to have at least two witnesses. But here's the thing. They were to be examined separately. These two were not examined separately. They were brought in and they testified together against, you don't want your witnesses corroborated if they were lying. So if you wanted a fair trial, you would take them on the side. You would question each one individually to make sure their stories lined up. We, we see that in law enforcement today. That's a, just a common practice. But here, no, these guys were false witnesses. The Sanhedrin wasn't looking for a fair trial. So they just let them testify together, you know, against Jesus. And furthermore, according to Jewish law, false witness was punishable by death. Yet nothing was done to the many false witnesses we read here in Jesus' trial. Again, just a kangaroo court. Well, latter part of verse 60, but at last two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now that temple took something like 46 or 47 years to build, Herod's temple. And they said, you're going to tear it down and build it in three days? Well, John in his gospel says, no, he was talking about the temple of his body. Destroy this, kill this temple, three days I'll raise it up, speaking of his resurrection. But they didn't get that, okay? And these guys didn't get it. When the high priest heard this, oh, he thought that was the ultimate blasphemy. So verse 62, he arose, the high priest, priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Well, this was in fulfillment of a prophecy Isaiah gave seven centuries earlier. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, this was talking about the Lord Jesus, talking about this very event. We read, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Matthew 26, verse 63, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, according to Leviticus 5, verse 1, if the high priest puts you under oath like this by the name of the living God, you were obligated by Jewish law to answer. Therefore, Jesus was no lawbreaker, he obeyed the laws of God, and so it's only at this point now does he answer the charges. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Are you the, son, the Christ, the Son of God? Just like you're saying, it is as you said. There are those who say Jesus never claimed to be Messiah or the Son of God. Well, what Bible are you reading? If you study the Gospels, especially John, I think in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, it talks about Jesus declaring himself to be equal with the Father, the Son of God. The Greek is, he constantly did that. It was the hallmark of his teaching ministry to claim he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And so he said, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, of course, we know what he was talking about. He was talking about his second coming. And he was saying, guys, I'll paraphrase. Let me tell you something. You want to know if I'm the Son of God? Well, just get ready, okay? A day is coming when every eye is going to see me return to establish the kingdom. At that point, everybody is going to know that I am the Son of the living God. The whole world will know it because every eye will see him. 
But the high priest at this point thought this was the ultimate blasphemy. So he said, he, he tore his clothes. And by the way, it was unlawful for the high priest to tear his clothes. I just throw that out, okay? Uh, everything they did was illegal that night. The high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? Well, it's obvious what they thought. They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Blasphemy. Uh, I think we know who the, ones, who the ones were who were blaspheming. They spit on him. In the East, that's a sign of total derision and disdain. I mean, for you to spit on somebody, uh, that was the lowest form of degradation is like you you were just looked upon as the most worthless scum on the face of the earth they spit on the lord jesus it says here that some of them slapped him with open hands the other gospel writers some of the, some of them punched him with closed fists the same greek word i think we get a word pugilist from boxer they punched him with a closed fist other gospel writers tell us they beat him with rods it says they hit him and said prophesy to us who struck you why did they say that because uh, Luke, I think, tells us they put a bag over his head. Why did they do that? Because when you put a bag over somebody's head, and then you strike that person, they can't react. I mean, if, if you know a blow is coming, you instinctively move away from it to soften the, the impact. With a bag over your head, you don't know where the blow is coming from. So the full force of these blows were hitting the Lord Jesus Christ in the face, rods hitting him on top of the head. Isaiah tells us that they actually ripped his beard out with their hands, disfiguring the Lord. In fact, turn to Isaiah 52. You know, the paintings that we have seen of Jesus over the centuries don't even begin to communicate what he went through on this day. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. God the Father is no doubt speaking, saying, Behold, my servant, speaking of Jesus, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, yes, at his second coming. Just as many were astonished at you, when? At his second coming. So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Hebrews a little clumsy. Scholars think what Isaiah is saying is, he was so disfigured he didn't even look like the son of a man. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom, it seems as though the kings of the earth are going to look upon him and be silent in horror at what was not told them, how he suffered when he died for us. In fact, Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, When we first see him, he has no form or, nor comeliness, no beauty at all that we should desire him. And when we first see him, we're going to turn our faces away from him in absolute shock. You know, guys, as we read the Gospels, and especially the post-resurrection accounts, it seems that none of Jesus' disciples recognized him after his resurrection. Now, we think of Mary, Magdalene, remember at the tomb? She gets there and finds the tomb is empty. And she starts weeping. Suddenly, Jesus appears behind her. She turns and sees him and thinks he's the gardener. And says, Sir, if you've taken his body away, will you tell me where you put it so I can go and get it? 
You didn't recognize him. You say, well, because she was crying. Her eyes were all puffy. Maybe. It wasn't until Jesus spoke her name, and he must have had a way of saying her name. He said, Mary. And she instantly knew who he was and fell at his feet and grabbed his ankles. She wasn't going to let him go. We remember in the afternoon of his resurrection, two of his disciples were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a town about seven miles away. And they were all bummed out, okay, because their hopes of the kingdom, Messiah, you know, they believed Jesus was the Messiah. Now he's been crucified, he's dead. And this strange report has come to their ears that the women went to the tomb, the tomb that morning and found it empty. And that angel said he had risen, but they, we don't know what to make of any of this. It's crazy talk. Suddenly Jesus appears to them. They didn't recognize him. And he begins to lead them in an Old Testament Bible study of all the things that were prophesied about Messiah. Don't you understand that the Messiah was to suffer these things before entering into his glory? And starting with Moses, he went through a whole Old Testament Bible study. They get to Emmaus, and he was going to keep going. They said, no, you got to eat with us. Come on. You know, still didn't know who he was until he broke the bread at the table, remember? Then their eyes were open, and he disappeared from their midst. Could it have been because they saw the nail prints in his hands? That they recognized who he was? We don't know. You say, well, that's speculation, isn't it? Well, of course it is. How about a few days later? Is the disciples went fishing all night, remember? I think Peter was the one who said, yeah, I'm going fishing. What was he saying? Was he saying, you know what? We had a good run, but yeah, it's over with. Jesus is gone. I'm going back to fishing. They fish all night, catch nothing. Next morning, there's a stranger on the bluff overlooking the sea. He says, children, have you caught any fish? No, we fished all night, caught nothing. Cast your net on the other side of the boat. <laughs> That's what Jesus said when he first called Peter to be a disciple. They cast the net on the other side immediately. It was loaded with fish. But it says they didn't recognize him as he stood there. Well, that was because, you know, they were kind of far away in morning mist. and Okay, maybe. But here's the clincher for me. They rode to shore, dragging this net full of fish, right? When they got there, here's Jesus. He's already got some fish on a fire, cooking it. Now he's right there, all right? He's right next to them, and he's talking to them. And then John adds this very cryptic little thing in John chapter 21, verse 12. And none of us dared ask him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord. Now, come on, something's going on here. Now, look. We know that he bore the marks of his crucifixion after his resurrection because in the upper room, remember Thomas wasn't there the first time he appeared that resurrection Sunday evening? And the other disciples were all excited and Thomas got back and said, the Lord was here, the Lord appeared to us. Uh, I'm not going to believe until I can put my finger in his nail prints in his hand and my hand in his spear wound in his side. And next week they're in the upper room, all of them, Thomas included, Jesus walks right in and says, Thomas, come here, put your fingers in my, in the, imprints in my hands and your hand and the spirit went in my side and thomas did and said my lord and my god so he bore the marks of his crucifixion after his resurrection while he was still on the earth we know he bore the marks of his crucifixion when he ascended back to the father because in revelation chapter 5 john sees a vision of the throne of god and suddenly jesus steps up and john describes him as a lamb who had been slain Again, Isaiah says that when we finally see him, we will turn our face away. It will be so shocking that we won't be able to look at him initially. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces 
from him. We even know, according to Zechariah 12, verse 10, when Jesus returns to the earth at his second coming, he's still going to bear the marks of his crucifixion. Because Zechariah tells us that um, they will look upon him, the Jewish people, will look upon him whom they have pierced, implying they're going to look upon the wounds that were inflicted by their forefathers many centuries earlier. And I had something after first service say, I've never heard that before. And it shakes you up when you first hear it for the first time. And people say, well, how long will he bear the marks of his crucifixion? I don't know. Maybe for all eternity. And could that be what Paul the Apostle meant in Ephesians 2, verse 7? That in the ages yet to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That for all eternity, every time we look at him, we are reminded of what he was willing to suffer for us. And it will speak volumes about his love for us forever. Look, I just want to say this to you. I think it's a good idea to prepare yourself. Your first glimpse of Jesus might be a very shocking experience. But after the shock wears off, wow, the love for what he has done for us. Now, while Jesus was undergoing his trial before the Sanhedrin, Peter was also on trial in a sense. He was going through a time of testing. In verse 58 we read uh, that Peter followed at a distance to see what was going to happen to Jesus and went in and sat with the servants in Caiaphas' courtyard. Now, John gives us a little more in his gospel. We read in John 18, starting in verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's John's way of referring to himself anonymously. Now, that disciple, John, was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the, at the door outside, outside the courtyard. Then the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. What's going on? Well, all we can figure out is that John's family had a lucrative fishing business up in the Galilee. And it could be that John, on more than one occasion, maybe John and his brother James, had brought a catch of fish down from the Galilee to deliver to the high priest's house. So Caiaphas and his staff knew John and his brother James. So, of course, when they brought Jesus into Caiaphas's inner courtyard, John just followed because he was well known. Peter stood outside the gate, and John, seeing him stand outside the gate, went over and talked to the gal who kept the gate and said, look, I know this guy, can you... Let him, he's with me. So she opens the gate, lets Peter in. Now, Peter is standing in the courtyard of Caiaphas's house. And where Peter is standing, he can see Jesus. Somehow, there was a doorway or a hallway, and he could see Jesus standing in front of the Sanhedrin clearly in his line of sight. Verse 69 of Matthew 26. Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl, who was a slave girl, actually, just a little peasant slave girl, came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're saying. You're crazy. Get out of here, kid. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him, another little slave girl saw him, and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. He said, I don't know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely, you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. See, up in Galilee, they had a kind of a brogue or an accent, you know, like a person in Boston, you know, or 
down in the South. We Chicagoans don't have an accent, uh, although I keep hearing people telling me we do, but I know we don't. Uh, but other parts of the country have an accent. And uh, the, the, the guys up in Galilee had a little kind of a Galilean brogue, I guess. And so, uh, you know, and so this little gal says, wait a minute, uh, you know, you were one of Jesus' disciples. And then some soldiers around the fire there said, yeah, your accent betrays you. You must be a Galilean. Since Jesus conducted most of his ministry in the Galilee, they figured they must be with him. Verse 74, then Peter began to curse and swear. Now, he's not using profanity. He began to call curses down upon himself if he was lying and was swearing by the name of God that he was telling the truth is the idea. So he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. One of the things that must have really humiliated and devastated Peter, who was a big, burly fisherman, right? A tough guy, who had earlier, the previous evening, when Jesus said, before the night's out, all of you are going to forsake me. And what did Peter say? Though these other disciples forsake you, I'll never forsake you. And Jesus said, Peter, before the night's out, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, I, will, I would die first before I would ever deny you. And now he breaks his promise, and the first two times he denies the Lord, he does it to a couple little slave girls, big, tough, burly fishermen, you know, scared of a couple little slave girls, right? He was devastated, humiliated, but more devastated, I think, that he had failed the Lord when he had made such a, you know, definitive promise of his loyalty and so on. Of course, with the third accusation, he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore with an oath he was innocent. As verse 74 tells us, the calling of curses on oneself back then was a kind of a, a legal way of seeking to affirm one's innocence. The idea was you called curses upon yourself, and if no calamity befell you in a short period of time, then everyone assumed, okay, you must be innocent because you called down curses on yourself, and you're, you know, if that I'm innocent and you're really not, God's going to get you. So nothing bad happens, all right, he must be telling the truth, he's innocent. But as Peter publicly denied the Lord for the third and final time, immediately the rooster crowed. And of course this triggered in Peter's thinking the words the Lord has spoken earlier in the evening before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. We saw that in verse 34. Now, Luke tells us something about that scene that no other gospel writer tells us. And I think it's pretty profound and pretty important. I'd like to, to spend the rest of our time looking at it this morning. Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us something that happened at that moment, at the moment Peter denied Jesus the third time. Luke tells us that immediately after Peter denied the Lord the third time, from where he was standing in Caiaphas' house, Jesus turned and looked directly at Peter. Can you imagine that? Now here's the question. What kind of look did Jesus give Peter that morning in the light of his failure to stand up for the Lord, but instead denying him three times. What kind of look do you think Jesus gave Peter? I mean, we're not told in the scriptures. We're left to speculate. So let's speculate for a few minutes. Was it a look of anger? Was it a look of anger? There are a lot of Christians who think that when they fail, God is angry with them. And you know, I deal with a lot of people who have been abused growing up, some of them have had abusive fathers 
who abused him, yes, sexually, which is horrific. But sometimes the father was just abusive in his language, you know? And I get a lot of people who have grown up in that type of a family environment. In fact, I've given this message at different times. God keeps laying it on my heart when I go places to speak because there are so many hurting people. In fact, after first service, somebody came up to me crying because they had failed the Lord kind of like Peter had done. And they were devastated. And the message this morning helped them get rid of the condemnation and understand how God really sees them. So if you've heard this before, bear with me. If you haven't, listen up. I think it's something that we all need to understand. But some Christians, many Christians, think that when they fail God, he's angry with them. And again, it could stem from having an earthly father that was hard on them, a father whom they could never please, no matter what they did, no matter how hard they tried. He would never praise them for anything good they did. He would only point out you know, their failures and condemn them when they did fail. So now when they fail as a Christian, now they're adults. This is when they were kids. But now that they're adults, when they fail the Lord, they imagine in their mind that God the Father in their earthly father's voice is saying to them, you know what, I told you you were no good. You're never going to amount to anything. You're, you're a failure. You'll always be a failure. I'm sick and tired of looking at you. Get out of my sight kind of a thing. God is angry with them. Some believe that Jesus gave Peter a look of disappointment, utter disappointment. There are many Christians who, when they fail, think they have let God down. They have let God down. They hear the voice of God whispering in their ears, I expected more from you. You've really disappointed me. This produces an incredible amount of guilt and shame, which causes them to act like Adam. And Eve, when they sinned in the garden, they ran and what? Hid themselves. Because they were so mortified, so full of shame. And there are people that I've talked to who have run from God and have hid out and have not been to church in years because they failed God in some way and were so mortified, had so much guilt and shame, they felt like they just had to run from God and hide. There are those who think that maybe Jesus gave Peter a look of sadness. What do you mean? Well, often we feel that our failures cause God to look at us with the same kind of sad look that one would look at, you know, a pathetic loser. I mean, someone who's a lost cause, like the Lord looks at us, they believe, when we blow it. He looks at us in a sad, kind of a shaking his head kind of a way, and like, you know, we would look at some kind of, again, a sad, pathetic loser there's, there's no hope for. Someone who, no matter how many chances he or she has given, always blows it, never seems to amount to anything in life. And of course, that, you know, causes a person to feel like, you know, what's the use of trying anymore? Every time I try, I fail. God must be sick and tired of hearing me tell him I'm sorry. I, I just can't ever get it together. I'm a failure. I'm always going to be a failure. Lord, just give up on me. I've given up on myself. Let me ask you again. What kind of look do you think Jesus gave Peter that morning in the light of his failure? And I'll warn you. Whatever look you think Jesus gave Peter that morning in the light of his failures is the same look you feel he looks at you with when you fail. Before we look at that, let me just clear up some issues here. First of all, I don't believe that look Jesus gave Peter that morning was a look of anger. The Bible teaches that God is not angry with his children ever. I'm not saying he's always happy with us. He's not grieved at times. He's never angry with his kids. Anger is a response that God reserves for rebels, 
those who refuse to repent for their sins, those who keep flaunting their sins in the face of a holy God, God reserves his anger for the wicked. In fact, the Bible says God is angry with the wicked all day long. Doesn't mean he doesn't love them. Doesn't mean he's not wanting to bring them to him. He's just angry with their deeds, their rebellion all day long. He's not angry with his kids who love him, who want to obey him, but sometimes fail because we're weak. He may chasten us, but God's chastening is never God's punishments. God deals with us not in a punitive way, but in a corrective way. That's what discipline is all about. God punishes the wicked. He disciplines his kids. Very different thing. Secondly, I don't believe that Jesus looked at Peter with a look of disappointment. Because again, guys, and we've talked about this, for God to be disappointed means our actions took him by surprise. He wasn't expecting it. That's ludicrous. God knows everything. I mean, he knew every sin we were ever going to commit before he even created us. We know that Peter's denial of the Lord didn't catch Jesus off guard because earlier in the evening he told Peter he was going to deny him three times. Why did he do that? Why did he tell Peter in advance? To break his spirit? No, to encourage his heart. First of all, to warn him, Peter, I know you love me. When you say that all these other guys might deny me or, or forsake me, but you'll never forsake me, I know you're sincere. Here's the thing, though, Peter. You're putting way too much confidence in your own strength. And the more confidence you put in your own strength to live for me, the more you're going to fail. Now, I know that. You've got to know that. I mean, Paul found that out, didn't he? He finally came to a point where he said, you know, where he said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm not putting strength in my own abilities, I'm trusting his strength, then I'm really strong, right? So Jesus was warning Peter, Peter, you're putting way too much confidence in your own strength. I know you love me. I know you're sincere when you say you'll never deny me. But I'm telling you, you're in for a fall. And secondly, he warned Peter to prepare him, to soften the blow of his failure by teaching Peter and all of us that our sins don't catch God by surprise. God is never disappointed with us. Because once again, disappointment comes with the idea that he's appointed us up here. He expects this from us. But we haven't measured up. We've disappointed him. We've, we've come down here in his expectations. That's impossible. God knows us. All right? You can't disappoint God when you fail. You can grieve him, but you can never disappoint him. And finally, I don't think that Jesus gave Peter a look of sadness that morning. The kind of look we might give a person who was a lost cause, a, a hopeless loser, the kind of person we often feel like when we fail and blow it as much as we do, which causes us to say, Lord, I'm hopeless, okay? I mean, I'm never going to amount to anything as a Christian. I, I'm, just, I'm just done. I feel like you've, you've, you're done with me too. You've given up on me. I've given up on myself. Let, let's just forget it. Forgetting what Paul said in Philippians 1. When he gave, you gave your heart to Jesus, he began a work in you and me, a work that he will never abandon. You might get frustrated. You might get discouraged. You might say, God, I'm done. I'm walking away. God says, well, I'm going with you. So I told you I wasn't going to leave you to forsake you. We had a deal. You gave me your life. I told you I was going to, you know, do this construction project. Like any remodeling project, I'd tear stuff down before I could build some good things up. Paul says, Jesus will never forsake us, and the work he starts, he will finish. And when's he going to finish it? When the rapture happens and we are brought into his presence and made like him as we see him as he is. We'll be glorified, we'll be perfect, and the construction project will be complete. Until that time, guys, we are all work in progress. And sure, it gets discouraging, you know? 
to see how your life is always under construction. You know, you're always blowing it. And it's true, we're not what we want to be yet, but look back for a second and realize you're not what you once were either. We're a work in progress. You say, okay, okay, then pastor, what kind of look do you think Jesus gave Peter that morning? Honestly, I personally believe it was a look of loving compassion. Kind of look a parent would give a child who is learning to walk but keeps falling. Remember when your kids were learning to walk and you were trying to teach them, you know, and had their little hands and you kind of stood over them and you kind of walked, you know, and then you tried to let go and then they took it and they fell and, you know, picked them up again. You helped them to learn a little more how to walk and you let go and they took a couple and they fell. Sometimes they got frustrated because they wanted to walk. It's just they weren't really ready to walk consistently. That's how God deals with us. In fact, let me read to you, you don't have to turn there, from Hosea chapter 11, where God said, When Israel was a child, I loved him. When the nation was brand new, just brought them out of Egypt. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, or called to them, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, false gods. They, turned, they burned incense to images, idols. Uh, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. Again, that imagery of the parents standing over a child, taking their little hands and helping them to walk, to learn how to do it. He said, it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. I bent down to feed them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? God is lamenting from those early days when they were just a little young nation. How they depended on God. They trusted in Him. And He was with them. He loved them and taught them how to walk in righteousness. Now years has gone by. They have forsaken the Lord. They've got into idols. But even at this point, God says, I can't give you up. How, how can I forsake you? I love you too much. I, I'm here for the long haul, God is saying. I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart has changed within me. All my compassion is aroused, he said through Hosea the prophet. Look, if the Lord can forgive Israel, a rebellious, idolatrous nation who lived under law, don't you think that he will forgive you and me, who are his kids? who love him and want to walk with him, but sometimes because we're weak, we fail and fall? Don't you think he'll forgive us when we blow it? If we come to him and say, Father, I, I blew it again. I know, I know. The devil wants to condemn. And God wants to pick us up. Look, let me just say this as we bring it to a close. God loves you. You know that theoretically, you know that biblically, do you know it practically? God loves you. He is not angry with you. He is not, he's not up in heaven condemning you and me because we're weak and prone to failure. He knows, he, he knew what he was getting himself into when he called us to be his kids. I mean, he knew all the times we were going to fail before he ever created us and still invited us to be his children. He's not going to condemn you and me now that because we are his kids and we're weak, and sometimes we fail and fall in our walk with him. Paul made that very clear in Romans 8 when he asked the question and answered it. Why would God condemn the very people he sent his son Jesus to die for? Those who are now his children. He's not going to condemn us now. We're his kids. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who belong to God, who are his children. Look, God knows our weaknesses. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He isn't putting any confidence in our strength. We might be. Peter did. God's not. In fact, in Psalm 103, we read, let me just read it to you. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to, to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He does not punish us for all of our sins. Or in other words, doesn't punish us as we deserve for our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. I wish we remember that. He knows it. God knows that we are weak and prone to failure. He understands that. And he is not condemning us for our failures as his kids. Because listen, he will use the failures to teach us how to walk better with him in the future. See, that's the thing about failure you have to understand. It's not a bad thing if you learn from it. When a child falls who is learning to walk, that's part of the process. It's just part of the process. It's not bad. It's not necessarily good. It's just part of the process of learning how to walk. The same is true in our Christian life. I'm not saying failure is good and it's inconsequential. You know, I'm just saying it's part of the process. God knows that. What do you think? You're going to become a Christian and never fail? That's not even logical. And God uses the very failures that we feel condemned about to be the very things he uses to teach us how to walk better with, with him in the future. When we stumble and fall, especially after we've made promises to God, we're going to do better now. That's why I don't like New Year's resolutions. They're based on my strength. God, I promise this year's going to be different. God says, okay, here we go. You know, don't make God promises you can't keep. Don't make God promises based on your own strength, like Peter did. But when we, you know, try to walk with God, we fail. We sin. We blow it. He's right there, stoops down, picks us up, dusts us off, takes us in his arms, whispers in our ears. Now, child, have you learned anything from this experience? Now, if you'll draw closer to me, I will give you the strength to walk with me better in the future. Our failures, although not virtuous, can really be used for good if we look to God. You know, Peter, and, and, and by the way, the very thing that we're talking about was the very thing he was about to do in Peter's life. Pick him up. Kind of dust him off. Give him a hug. Forgive him. We read how that when Peter denied the Lord for the third and final time, he went out and wept bitterly. He, he was broken. Peter was sincere. God knew his heart. God saw that those tears were genuine tears of sorrow and repentance. And the first person that Jesus sought out after his resurrection was Peter, we learned. He wanted Peter to know. Didn't I tell you you were going to blow it? You, you meant well. But Peter, don't put your trust in your own strength. And don't think you're going to do anything apart from me. Now, what have you learned from this? I'm sure Peter said, I learned a lot, Lord, about my own weakness, thinking I was so strong. All right, Peter. That's what I was looking for. I can only use broken vessels. Broken, I can't use proud, self-confident people. You have to be broken of self-effort. 
You've got to be weak and come to me and rely on my strength. When you're weak, you're going to be really strong. And so the Lord forgave Peter and went on to use Peter in ways Peter never thought possible. Look, we're all going to fail. But when you fail and fall, are you going to give up? Are you going to get up and move forward with the Lord? Look, every person that God has ever called to be his child has failed. And the difference between those who go on to be used greatly for God and those who are not used very much for God is not their failures. Is that some, when they fail, they fall and Satan condemns them and they lie there and they give up. Others, when they fail and they fall, they repent, they learn from their mistakes, they get up, and they keep going forward with the Lord. And God says, yes. Have you learned anything? Yes, Lord, I have. Good. That it wasn't a wasted experience. You keep drawing close to me, and I will keep giving you the strength to walk with me. You move away from me, you're going to fall. You're going to fail. Don't put confidence in your flesh. Draw close to me, and I'll give you the strength to live the Christian life. And I will use you in ways you can't even imagine right now. So failure, the devil uses it to condemn us. God wants to use it to grow us. It's up to us. Are you going to lie there and give up, or are you going to repent and get up? It's up to us. May God give us the grace to get up and go forward. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Lord, we know that you know we're just dust, made from the dust of the earth. Someday we will return our bodies to the dust of the earth. But when you come for us in the rapture, Lord, you're going to resurrect us, give us a glorified body, a perfect body. We will never sin again. But right now, Lord, we live in these bodies of death, as Paul called them. They're prone to failure. And Lord, we ask for grace to draw close to you every day, to not make promises to you that we cannot keep, but simply, Lord, to look to you for strength, to be all that you want us to be. So, Father, thank you that you're a loving Father, that when we do fail, you don't condemn us. You stoop down, pick us up, dust us off, give us a hug, and say, hey, let's keep walking now. Stay close to me. You're going to be all that I want you to be. So, Lord, thank you. Give us grace to understand that. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.